I was a terrible opiate addict. I always tell folks that I would definitely have died had I not had a short run and gotten into recovery quickly. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today we are with Chris Muller, who you've been around the recovery community for over a decade. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you're a great advocate for those that are struggling through volunteer work, philanthropy. You've also worked in the industry. Yep, that's right. So these are all things we'll we'll talk about today, as well as music and fitness and all the things that have helped you along the way. But yeah. let's start with just sharing your story with us. Sure. That's a... We have, what, five hours? That's right. So yeah. I'll keep it yeah. short, down to five. Yeah, I mean, in regards to, you know, recovery, I um, grew up a lot like most, you know, Midwestern, I guess you could call it, Northern Kentucky kids. I, I had uh, played sports and had two parents and did pretty well, you know, okay in school, not great grades. I was always one of those kids. And I think I kind of still am where I, I would get the report card sent home that said, Chris is a great kid if he just apply himself. You know, I, I was always that guy that if he would just apply himself. And yeah. so, you know, I always sort of felt uncomfortable in my skin. It didn't help that I was always like a little bit overweight, redheaded, freckles. And then I got into high school and it was like the acne. And so I was not uh, what I would consider a ladies' man in the way that I looked. But I made up for that with a giant sort of personality. I, I really stuck with the idea that if I could make fun of myself before you could, I could make it funny. And uh, I'd rather you laugh at my expense than not laugh at all. At the time I was in high school, Chris Farley was the big yeah, guy. I was just going to say, yeah. sounds like Chris Farley. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, people actually called me Chris Farley because I acted just like him and I was high motor like him. And he was, you know, right at his peak around the time I was in high school. So, you know, the first time I took a drink, I was, I guess, like a freshman in high school. And my sister, who was a senior, who was everything that I was not, she's beautiful and, uh, got great grades and had a lot of friends and and she took me to a party and I had sort of grabbed this bottle of liquor from my uh, parents liquor cabinet that I knew I was going to drink at some point and tonight was the night and I did what you know a lot of folks do I got really sick but I can tell you that the first 15 minutes after I drank that entire bottle top to bottom in like a minute <laughs> it was it was a pint and I drank the whole thing I had that feeling that a lot of folks in recovery explain as I felt like I was the person I was supposed to be at that moment. I went around the room and, and told every girl what I really thought about them and let my smoothness really shine through and made a complete jackass of myself and then uh, got sick and made a giant spectacle of myself. And luckily my sister was popular enough and the guys that she ran with were gracious enough that they picked me up and put me in her car before it became too much of a spectacle. So I, uh, I went to Saturday detention the next day and laid on the bathroom floor that I was supposed to be cleaning and thought about the night before and what that was like. And it was really interesting because I felt terrible 
But all I could think about was that 15 minutes and how I felt in that 15 minutes. And it totally overshadowed any of the bad, how I felt at that moment, the fact that I was laying on a bathroom floor, smiling, feeling nauseous. So that was my introduction. And those people that know me, I'm a go big or go home type of guy. I still have that. I men- yeah. I still have that mentality. So I uh, took that and ran with it. And, you know, I think within two more weeks, I had another drink. And, you know, that just carried on. And I got into music. My parents separated when I was 15 years old. And when I was 16 years old, um, I was living with my dad at the time. I moved in with him when I was 15. And my stepfather now, who was my mom's boyfriend at the time, had an old crummy drum kit. And I said, I'm going to learn how to play drums. And he said, I got a drum kit. I'll sell it to you for a hundred bucks. So I bought this drum kit from him and it was very similar to what I would explain that first drink. I immediately found relief when I played drums. So I would sit down in my dad's basement for hours at a time playing drums. I would get home from school and I would go downstairs and start playing drums and I would play well into the evening, two or three in the morning. And I did that for several years and like the go big or go home guy I am, I was within two years, I had a ska band together and we were touring and playing in Chicago and I was managing eight guys and you know, we were kids. So we had to go on tour with eight guys and a bunch of band equipment took four cars. And this was before we had smartphones and Google. So yeah. it was, you know, planning a tour involved MapQuest and an Atlas and, you know, paper map. Yeah. I'm like a dinosaur yeah. trying to figure this stuff out. And I'm also, you know, a 17 year old kid. And so that was really a really exciting time in my life. But also what I found at that time is I was running around with some people that um, I wouldn't say they were like bad influences or anything like that. But there were some older guys that I was running around with and they could get alcohol a lot easier. Um, And so in that culture, in the band culture. I was going to say that lifestyle is already kind of dicey with, you know, it's your nocturnal. It was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It was a perfect fit for me because uh, it gave me a reason to be social it gave me a reason to uh, sort of write off the things that I was doing that maybe I felt I knew kind of deep down weren't the best things for me, but you know, it, it worked out. I got into college and I spent most of my time in college sleeping and touring on the weekends and, and on breaks and um, drinking and drinking and drinking. And, you know, the more you drank and the more crazy you got, the more people liked you. So that worked out beautifully for me. I almost got kicked out of college after my first semester. Um, actually, my dad intervened and said, look, I'm not expecting straight A's, but this is this, you, you, it's time to grow up at some point. And, you know, I met that as you can't do this. That's what I heard him say, which was not at all what he said, but I heard him say, you can't do this. So I became for the first time in my life, like a B plus student. I learned how to study and I proved everybody wrong because that's go big or go home. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't really until after I graduated college and I was playing with another group, um, some guys that, you know, and, um, where the drinking really sort of became a daily thing. It was a a nightly thing. And then it became a daily thing. I wasn't really a during the day type of drinker, but, um, sometimes when I figured out that could get me going, I would do it. So I, I played music and I partied, but what happened was the guys I graduated college with and ran with a lot of the time, they, they started to like get real jobs and, 
get girlfriends and fiancés, and then they started having kids, and I'm still like, come on, guys, let's go out, let's do this. And they're like, man, we can't do that anymore. And and that's when I started noticing really in my early 20s when I started noticing, oh, I'm a little different than a lot of the guys I run around with. Now, the guys I played music with, they they lived that time clock. So even if they weren't drinking a lot or anything like that, they were at least, you know, let's wake up at noon and hang out rather than, Hey, I get up at six and go to work like right. everyone else. So I decided that after about three years out of college, I decided that I've got to do something to make it look like I'm doing something. All I was doing was playing music and partying really. So I decided I'm going to get serious about this music thing and I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to study music and I'm going to really learn. At that point, I hadn't had a lot of lessons, formal training. So I went back to Northern Kentucky University and I, I started studying percussion performance. And it was strange because I was like 25, I guess. And these are the kids, like 18, 19 year old kids, and they were all way better players than I am on all of the instruments, all the percussion guys. But I was the only one that like could get alcohol. And I was the only one that was in a band that had cut records and was touring and stuff like that. So we had a kind of, that was a fun time for me. I did well because I worked really hard. I wanted to be good at it. And I, to be honest, my ego told me it would be really embarrassing if this guy who had these records and who was touring with his band was just awful on, on his instruments. So I got through two years of that. I got to go study abroad in Ghana and I got some really nice experiences with that. And I remember the guy who led the trip to Ghana saying to me, man, I've never met anyone who can drink as much as you and show up the next day and be ready to go. And that was always sort of a pride point for me was I can handle myself. I can handle myself. So move forward a few years. I, I, I end up not finishing. I go two years full-time and then realize there's not an associate's degree and I'm not good enough to be an orchestral player and I don't want to teach. So there's no reason for me to be here. So I left on to the next adventure. I'm going to get my pilot's license. Really? Yeah. Yeah. My dad's a pilot and I always sort of wanted to prove that I could do that. So I went and I got my private pilot's license and I studied for my instrument rating and I went and took the instrument rating test and aced it and everything was good. And the night before my check ride for my instrument rating, I went out and I just drank all night and I was supposed to wake up and take my check ride and I never showed up and I never took another lesson. And I never flew again. Really? Yeah. That's always been never some, official. Just. Never. I had my my private license. I never got my instrument rating. But then once I missed that, I just never went back. I never flew another plane. And I always look back at that like you know someday, someday I might go finish that because I've I've spent a lot of time in the last twelve years sort of going back and finishing things that I had started before. I, I've I've always sort of made jokes about folks in recovery. A lot of my friends and a lot of people I know were such strong starters very strong starters. Yeah. It's where, um, later in life where I've sort of learned to apply myself in recovery that I've learned to actually finish things and see things through. Follow so, through. Yeah. Follow through. I think that's something I'm going to work at the rest of my life. So at this time it's around 2005 and, um, I'm drinking every day at this point and I'm in another group and we're gaining some popularity and we're starting to tour a lot. And I, have a day, a Sunday afternoon where I am in a blackout. I started to black out a lot from my drinking and, um, we were playing wiffle ball and I dislocated my shoulder playing wiffle ball. It's a really embarrassing 
story because I've got this giant scar on my shoulder and people are like, what's that from? And I'm like, playing wiffle ball. <laughs> I promise I'm a better athlete than that. But, you know, um, it's it's a life scar. But that led to some events that um, that led me ultimately to end up having to get surgery on my shoulder. And at that point, I was introduced to uh, opiate painkillers, which was something that I had never – experimented with. I, I had, I had done a lot of other things. I had done a lot of things besides drinking. Uh, I experimented with a lot and I was pretty consistently doing things besides drinking, but I had never experienced the opiate. And I knew immediately when I was recovering from that surgery, I knew immediately what I was in for, um, overusing immediately, you know, calling my doctor and telling him I lost my prescription, you know, my orthopedist, and then calling my primary care guy and saying, Hey, I lost my prescription. Can you, you know, and trying to really work this thing like a squirrel, of course, and, yeah. you know, cause I knew there was no way I was going to, I remember thinking the first time I sort of overused thinking I'm never going to be without this ever in my life. It, it really, I can equate it to like the first time I drank. It was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. This is incredible. And I'm now where I usually feel sick during the day. I can just take these and it just levels me right out. Back in 06 around here, you could still finagle the system and get way more than you needed. It's a lot harder nowadays, of course, because of the opium epidemic, the, the opiates and all that stuff. But back then you could still, you could still make that happen for yourself. I was a terrible opiate addict. I always tell folks that I would definitely have died had I not had a short run and gotten into recovery quickly. It was, it was literally like 35 days from the first time I took one of those pills that I was in treatment. Wow. Yeah. It was that fast. It was really bad. So I, I, I was still drinking like at that point, at least like a fifth of Jägermeister every day and then lots of, you know, beers or whatever else I could get in me. Um, and that's how I like to drink. And I like to drink Red Bulls with it so I could experience that real high, right. you know, really get me going. And then once I was introduced to the opiates, what would happen is I lost my ability to control my body. So I would go out and get sloppy and I would forget where I was and I would fall down. And, you know, my friends would send me home and I'm going to sling the whole time because I was, oh, I yeah. had shoulder surgery, you know, and it got to a place where I was having a conversation with my mom and my sister one day and uh, my sister was living in Arizona, but she was visiting from home and we were just talking about life and it, it came out, I guess, overflowed. I said to my mom and my sister, I said, I'm having some problems. I don't not, you know, at that point, the drinking was no longer this wonderful, yeah. <laughs> you know, medication that made me feel like this wonderful person. At this point, it started to take relationships from me. And uh, I, I, I was in real poor health and I, I was smoking a lot of cigarettes and I just couldn't, couldn't get out of that funk. It was a deep depression. And my mom, you know, suggested that I talk to this guy. He was a social worker, a private social worker. And I went and met with him. And for the first time in my life, he said, how much are you drinking? And I said, well, you know, this or that. And he said, You're, you wouldn't be here if that's what you drank. You can be honest with me. And he said, walk me through a couple of days in your life. And I walked him through and he looked at me and he went, uh, acute. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, you're going to die. I'm just being honest with you. He's like, my job is to be honest with you and you're going to die. And it was incredible. My response to that, I'll never forget it. It was like, I know. And when, and that's when it really got real for me was this is real. This is happening. This is me. And he said, you don't have to live like that. You know, there's, there's a way out. And he said, and there's help if you want to accept it. 
And I am really blessed in my life that my mom and uh, the people in my family were very supportive. We will do anything you need to do. We will find a way to financially help you. We will do whatever you need to do to get you out of this. And and to this day, I get goosebumps thinking yeah. about it because that was not everyone has that. Sure, you know, and I recognize that. And they sent me to treatment off to Arizona. I went and. Um, you, you and I were chatting earlier and I don't usually tell this story, but I walked into treatment and it was day one and I'd never been to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd never been to any, any sort of 12 step program. I'd never been anywhere that people were in recovery. I knew nothing about it. I'd never been to a treatment facility. I'd never been to any of these places and I walked in and it's a whole different culture. And I walked in in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner in 2006 and there's all these people and everybody's coming up to me, what's your drug of choice and all this stuff. And I'm just really second guessing where I am. And this guy came up to me and he worked there and he was a second shift counselor. And, you know, I still, I feel like I'm actually dressed like him today. I remember he had jeans and a black t-shirt and like sleeve tattoos. And I was like, this guy's cool, man. You know, I bet he's got a good story. And he's like, I wasn't thinking that necessarily at the time he comes up and he goes, you doing okay? And I said, well, not really. I, I'm not sure I should be here. <laughs> you start to second guess things when the opiates start wearing off mm-hmm. and, you know, you're coming through an alcohol detox and you're, you know, a thousand miles from home. And, and he just sat with me for four hours and shared my story. And, and that was a profound moment for me because it, it's, I find, I find it deeply profound when to have a shared experience with another human being. And I think a lot of us overlook that. But to that moment, and I can say that moment in my life was when I realized I really felt like I was the only person in the world ever in the history of the world to feel the way that I felt and to have the problems that I was having. And this guy in four hours completely unraveled my entire life by telling his story. And I remember thinking oh, if I can help one person, because I felt useless at this time in my life, right. you know, totally useless, totally hopeless. And this guy, this was the first time I had had hope that there wa- really was a way out. I was just following direction at this point. Now I'm starting to think, oh, th- this can be done. This can be done. And I remember thinking at that moment, if I could help one other person in my life, the way that guy just helped me in four hours, my entire life will have meaning. And you know, that's a, that's a pretty low baseline for your life to be like, if I can just help one person in all of my years, my life will mean something, but that's where I was. And that's how little I felt. And, uh, so I, I went through that program. I ended up staying 52 days cause I tried to quit smoking cigarettes at the end of it. And they were like, yeah, we're not sending you home right now. You're crazy. And I, and I, So I stayed the 52 days, but I made a decision in treatment because of my therapist who was a master's in social work. I was like, I'm going to go do that. This is what I'm supposed to do. I I immediately felt that way. I'm supposed to become this master's of social work and help people in recovery because my, I knew my life was changing course and I haven't, I haven't really looked back. I I got out of uh, treatment and I uh, engaged in 12 step programs and I, um, to this day, explore those and, and believe wholly in them and spend a lot of time in them. And I went after three years, I got accepted to university of Louisville master's social work program. And I went and got on at a, a local facility in in Northern Kentucky here. It's a social service agency, one of the largest in Northern Kentucky. And I got on as a intern and then I got you know, to have a caseload. And then I became a program coordinator. And next thing you know, here I am at five years sober and it's like 2012 or 13 at this time. And 
I'm overseeing a program and hunt, you know, I got a hundred folks in recovery that I'm working with and I'm doing it. And, uh, it's, it was, it's been great. You know, I still play music. I was playing music all through that time. When I first got out of treatment, I actually like at 60 days sober started planning a tour and at like less than six months sober, I was in a van touring the country in bars every night, you know, because I just have this knowledge, like I can do this. And I really felt that I could do it. And I was surrounded by supportive people and, but my heart still goes out. I still think about what it took and what I had in the beginning. And I still think about that a lot. And I try to make myself available to folks that might not have that family member, might not have that support of, you know, we'll help you in any way that you can. I work with a lot of guys that they're coming from places where they're kicked out of their house and their parents are deceased and their kids aren't talking to them and nobody even cares at that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they've all had enough. And so, you know, it takes, I think, a a special, and I learned this in school, it takes a special type of person to want to hang out with those people because, you know, the hopeless, hopeless folks aren't necessarily always the easiest to get along with. And, um, I don't know. I just have a heart for them because I feel like their blood runs through my veins. I understand it. Um, I told you I started playing drums in high school and that was really an escape for me when I got out of treatment. I, I started playing music and I just banged and banged and banged on the drums and did anything I could. And, Decided we had had some experiences with some record labels and I decided at that point, you know what, I don't really need a record label. I'm going to start my own and that way I don't have to deal with all these people that are lying to me. So I figured out how to get an LLC and I started a record label and in 2006 from my house, which was just at that time, something we could put on the back of our CDs. Hey, this is our record label. You know, it looks more legit when there's a third party advocating for you. And I think that's across the board in life. And then, uh, that just sort of took off on the side while I was working in the field and got to a place where we had put out some other groups and, you know, a partnership had happened with a buddy of mine and he decided to come full time into the label as the manager. And in 2015, I'm a director at this social service agency over this entire family center and program. And I had the opportunity to go back and, uh, leave that field and run my business. And so I went and I don't run the business, which is funny. Um, my partner runs the business, but I got to be involved full time and we're still doing it. We have distribution and manufacturing and it's really fun. We have like 12 full-time artists that are touring and I get to be involved in recovery and I get to be involved in rock and roll and music and I get to advocate for people. I've recently joined the board of a, of a, organization in Northern Kentucky called Reset Ministries. And it's a faith-based organization that has next level recovery homes for men and women. And I've helped them rebuild their men's program and I'm growing that agency. And that's been really fun because I get to keep my professional edge and I get to be in the trenches with guys and work on programming and things like that. But it's wild. It's, it's, uh, that's a lot in a few minutes, (laughs) but you said, tell your story. No, that's, that's amazing because a lot of us want to the moment we have our moment of clarity Mm -hmm. a lot of people say okay this is it i want to do this forever and Mm -hmm. i was one of those people too but you took it to another level i mean you instantly knew that you wanted to make this a career which some say i just want to i want to get into 12 step i want to 
help people along or do whatever I can, speak, things like that. So I think getting a formal education, the social work, you just, you dove in head first and then immediately, you know, with volunteer work and you know, philanthropy, I know your label gives back. Sure. So my record label is Sofa Burn and we're based in Northern Kentucky. And part of our business model is charitable gifting. Like I believe strongly in charitable gifting, especially coming from that field, you know, as a social worker, I've been on both sides of it. And one of my favorite things in the world is to try and give back any way I can. And I also believe strongly that a, a healthy business model involves giving back to the community. So we started Sofa Gives, which is now a legitimate charitable fund. And it's a way for us to engage the community and engage our artists. And part of part of the proceeds that we make goes into this fund to where we can distribute to different 501c3s. We've, we've given to several different programs. We, we're based in Dayton, Kentucky. So we got to give uh, a little bit to the Dayton, like the music, their music program, the Dayton High School. And I've gone and spoken to their classes. And it's a really awesome community down in Dayton. And I drove past it yesterday. Yeah. First time, it was one, it was one of those things that I knew I was going to be talking to you. Mm -hmm. And I knew about the, the place. And then all of a sudden, I'm driving through Dayton. And I look to my right, and I see so your building. It was yeah. one of those one of those kind of I always things, tell people but. it's like I've made it. We have a sign and a building. Yeah. It's so <laughs> cool. Know? I always felt like in the music business, I've made it. I feel like 16-year-old Chris would be very proud of, you know, 41-year-old Chris because I have a practice space that's not my basement. I actually have a studio and a space where I can go play music. It's not a high bar, but I'll take it. When you went back to school for or went to school for music, Mm -hmm. You said that your skills weren't where they need to be. Did did you get to where you wanted to be on the drums? I don't think I ever did. I think I was at my best when I was touring. Right, I really when I first got out of treatment, I was playing drums like six hours a day because I didn't have a lot else going on. And when we were, I, I did learn a lot in school, but I learned a lot like classical marimba, you know, and things that are magnificent. But really, I'm just a drum kit drummer, and I'm and a above average one at that. And really, bang. bang. That's right. You know, hit them hard and be loud and, yeah. and do that. But I got to a place where, like anything else, when I was playing a lot was when I was at my best. And, you know, I don't get to play as much nowadays. I love to play drums and I love to play with singer-songwriters. And I'm a little more laid back than I used to be. But I think really school at that point was just a vehicle for me to feel like I was doing, like I said, you know, doing, doing something to make it look like I was doing something. It's yeah. a great way to put it. Yeah. Tell us about fitness fitness has been a big part of your of your recovery yeah yeah so i i'm a high motor guy and i can tell you that you know there was something when i took that first drink that sigh of relief i was telling you about that 15 minutes where i felt like i was who i was supposed to be that to me was a reaction to the medication that I had put in my body. So what I've learned along the way about myself is that I have a naturally high and cold running motor and that's my natural body. That's my natural state. My mind, like a lot of folks in recovery, it tends to race and it tends to uh, go all of the time, regardless on if my body is or not. And so what I learned is that it's really important for me to be physical. And like I said, in high school, I always played sports and stuff, but I, you know, didn't take it seriously, but it wasn't really until 
I guess about 10 years ago, I started weight training and understanding like, okay, I've put my body through this sort of hell really for 14 years. And now I'm trying to do better. And so why not go this route? And what I learned later is that's a natural reaction of a lot of people in early recovery is I'm going to get fit. I'm going to lose all this weight. And I did, and I obsessed about it and I lost like, gosh, 50 pounds. And I was running like 10 miles a day and not enjoying it just to control something. Well, then I got into grad school and that all ended. Once I got into grad school, I sort of didn't have time to work out and run like that. So a few years ago, I've always been active in the gym and things like that. A few years ago, a buddy of mine got me into running and I run with a group and I've just run my third half marathon And I am learning a lot about living in the uncomfortable and I'm learning a lot about my brain through running and through physical exercise. And I'm learning about what we really are capable of. And I'll tell you, I just thought about this, but we were, we were talking earlier about that moment where I had hope that first night in, in rehab, uh, or in treatment when I realized I can do this, I can do this. And when I'm running and I'm trying to overcome something physical, I get to have that moment quite frequently where it's like, you know, you are doing something right now that you don't maybe feel like you can do and you are doing it. And this can be done. And I like that. I like personal, you know, achievement. And and I'm not talking about grandstanding or patting myself on the back. I just like the idea that I'm going to be honest with you. I'm people can't see me, but I'm a bigger guy, you know, I'm a bigger guy. And the fact that I can get this body 13 miles without stopping to walk impresses me, (laughs) you know, and, and I'm tickled by that. And I think it's hilarious because I'm that guy that people, when I tell them that I run, they look at me and then they look down at my knees and they look back at me and they're like, really, how are your knees holding up? It's the first question I always get because I'm, you know, see bigger guys that run that way. But, uh, I enjoy the camaraderie of it, but I find that, you know, I don't, I don't have the medication that I used to have. And I've learned how to live without drinking or taking any substances, but I have to do other things not to substitute, but to make sure that that brain of mine is focused and in the right place. And I've learned that physical activity is a huge part of that. Spirituality is a huge part of that. You know, giving back to the community is a huge part of it, but I really, the emotional and the spiritual and the physical, the physical is a big part of it for me. Speaking of the brain, in really early recovery, what was what was that like for you emotionally? Did you go into a depression with you know guilt, shame? Did you fight all the the normal stuff where mm-hmm. it, it was it dipped down before it got better? Even with having the moment of clarity, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I went through a few years of that. I mean, to be honest and real with you, it was not. I didn't get out of treatment and say, I'm going to go get my master's and save the world. That was not, that was the the long-term goal. And the fact that that actually happened is a miracle in itself. But the three years between when I got out of treatment and getting to that point, and even through that point, I mean, I had several personal crises in that time due to my own emotions, you know, and there are just some things that can't be controlled until you walk through it you know, and I'm lucky I made it through mine without taking a drink or a drug. When I first got sober, like I said, I was 
really obsessing about the weight and the food because I felt completely out of control. And then I had to start looking back at my path of destruction because the program that I was in taught me that it was important for me to go back and look at those things and and clean up my side of the street. And that was a scary thing because I'd done a lot of damage. I'd hurt a lot of people. Um, I always tell people now though, that was the easy part because as you go through your recovery or your life sober, then you, you hurt people and you've got to go back and fix it. And you don't have the excuse that I was sick. You know what I mean? And, and so that's, that's an even harder thing to do is to go back and have to fix things sober, but, uh, not that it was an excuse then, but yeah, that was definitely, I, I always tell people the first three years of recovery are pretty, they're, they're, they're great years. They're wonderful years, but by far, I think the most challenging. No doubt about it. Yeah. Especially that first year. I always tell people like the first year, it's tough because everything's brand new. You still get a little bit of that folks around are like, boy." A lot of people are sort of cheering you on if you have support and you get into the second year and it's sort of like, nobody's doing that for you anymore. And you realize, oh, like, where's my pat on the back? I'm in my second year. Is that as good as it's going to get? That's right. It's like, am I here? Is this it? You know, and then I think the third year for me, and this comes at different times for different people, it was slow for me. The third year was when I really started to stretch my, my legs out a little bit. Like, okay, this isn't about just helping people in recovery. There's a whole world out there. I'm not the only person who has suffered. And and I think it's important for me to realize that and see how far I can go. We're extraordinarily selfish people, especially (laughs) when we're in the throes of, of, uh, our active addiction. That's right. But. One thing I was told, and it's true, is when you get into recovery, you have to be even more selfish mm-hmm. with you know, digging in and therapy and, and worrying about yourself. And so how was it, how did you couple that with running in different circles and, and how did you kind of separate, if that's the right word, from your old crew? Sure. How yeah. did you, how did you re, reacclimate? Again, you know, I think that's a great question. And I think everybody, this is a unique story for everybody. I, again, was really lucky. I came home and I had a house and I didn't even go to my house. I went and stayed at my mom's house for like, gosh, four or five months because I had to have another shoulder surgery. Oh, I've left this part of that out. So when I was in treatment, I re-hurt the shoulder that I had injured, that I had gotten addicted to the painkillers on. So I'm in treatment and I need another surgery. So I got, game of wiffle ball. Right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so embarrassing. So then I got out of treatment and within a month had to have a sh- another shoulder surgery. Now you got to keep in mind, I'm like 70 days sober and I'm about to have a surgery where the doctor's telling me you're going to need these Percocets. And I had to go to the doctor and say, I'm not, I can't take them. I don't want to take them. And he was like, well, why not? And I was like, well, I've been in treatment. And then he kind of looked at me. Cause it was the same doctor from before. And I had, I was able to look him in the eye and say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You know? And cause he, he immediately was like, what, why were you in treatment? I told him, I was like, you know, I got, I have a drinking problem. I got hooked on Percocets and he's like, why'd you get hooked on? Oh, you know? So that was a moment, but then I had this second surgery and, uh, went through it with no, no pain medication at all. And it was like a rebuild of my shoulder. And they gave me this non-narcotic, painkiller. It's like called uh, Toradol. And I took it twice and I was like, this is worthless. <laughs> I'm not taking yeah. it. So I just took my ibuprofen, but I, I went through that and then realized like, um, I don't, I don't, this is, this is 
something that it was an immediate second chance, but I had the guys that I played music with were 100% supportive of me and they had seen it and none of them were like me. Like that was the thing that, that I want to be clear about is the people that I ran with, I was typically the worst one. Like I was typically the guy pulling everyone else down. I, I, I was very, very blessed when I got sober that the guys I played music with, they didn't condone that. They were always on my team. When we went on the road, they knew if I got agitated that we would stop, leave. They always said, man, if there's a problem, we'll pack up and leave. Nothing's more important than that. So I was, man, it was like, I work with so many guys that don't have that experience. And it was like, but I will say this, other than that core group of guys and a few others, I pretty much lost everybody. And it wasn't because I didn't have good friends and I wasn't a good person. It was because by the end, the people that I was running with consistently were the only people who were into what I was into. And besides the guys I played music with and was close friends with. So I, I had some really good people around me, but I will say that, you know, you, you mentioned depression earlier. You mentioned, um, the ups and downs in early recovery. And that was probably the hardest. The hardest for me was changing my social structure because now you go from a guy that's got 20 people around him all the time and it bars seven nights a week to sitting at home, maybe going to a meeting, you know, and coming home and not having anybody hit me up that wants to spend any time with me. They only weren't really wanted to hang out with the old guy and the old guy couldn't come back. It's scary to kind of feel like people really like the guy that was sick because I wasn't a terrible person. I was at times really fun, wild, and just enjoyed myself. And I, like Chris Farley, you said, you know, I had a big life like that. And now here I am trying to figure out my next step. And I, and that's so tempting to just want to go do that. Right. That was really hard for me. You talked about shoulder surgery. You talked about what you just talked about of grinding it out by yourself Mm -hmm. and having some really bad situations, early recovery. Those are the things, and I had similar situations, that propel you to keep going. Sure. If I would have buckled under any sort of stress or anything like that, but you're you're already doubting yourself. Can I do this? I want to do this, but you you come over a hurdle, and sometimes you don't even think about it. You don't think about a drink, and you're like, man, if I can do, if I can get through that, mm-hmm. I'm not going to piss this away by wanting to go run with my guys for a night. That's you're, right. You're coming yeah. through these natural progressions of of sorrow and you know and highs and lows. And then you've got a surgery where you could just pill out if you wanted oh, to. Yeah. And yeah. It, so you grind through that. And then I know exactly what you're talking about by being by yourself. Mm-hmm. I was like that for a year and a half. I didn't want to risk anything. Right. But then, and then people start, they don't ask you to do stuff anymore. And it's not because they don't want to hang out with you. A lot of the times it's they don't think they should. They think they're protecting you. Yeah, and yeah. it's not their fault, but that's the worst thing really that you need. Yeah. Because you, you should still see them sporadically when it's a when it's a appropriate event. And my friends were the same way. The one because I chose I chose to tell everybody mm-hmm. at one time instead of going out and what the hell aren't you drinking, man? What the fuck? You know, and, right, and, right. and, and having convert 35 conversations like that. I just chose to broadcast it. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, man, and I grew up in a, in a town where it's, 
small town USA and everybody mm-hmm. knows everybody. And I'm thinking, when I have my little coming out party, I am going to be shunned. Right. Because I was four generations in the same town of a good name. And I'm the first one that is a complete nightmare. Oh, man. So, but it was opposite. The support was just uh, astounding. Right. And so you're able to, you're able to kind of reacclimate a little quicker. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that is, that's all part of it. You know, that terror, the loneliness, you know, one of the, one of the things that I like to encourage people with is that, uh, in early recovery, because that's such a, that's such a scary time for everybody. I don't care who you are. It's just a scary time is that we all feel incredibly lonely in the beginning. You think you felt lonely before, Well, now you add this change and you take away whatever you're leaning on. And, and I think that loneliness is something that I don't, uh, to be honest, I don't think we talk about it enough in early recovery. I bring it up a lot, especially if I'm, you know, working with a new guy and, and he's struggling. I bring it up before he experiences it. I said, look, man, there's going to be times where you're going to feel really lonely and you're going to feel like if somebody doesn't answer the phone, you're going to take it personally. And, you know, and, and that's, that's part of it. And that's the, it's a, I hate using the term normal, but it's a pretty common occurrence in folks in early recovery. And and you can get through that. And if you make it through that period of that extreme loneliness and you understand that's not real, that's just a reacclimation of your brain to your environment and you kind of can hit the reset button and start over, you get through that moment, you got a real good chance at having long-term recovery. And you have those moments because you have your moment of clarity. And I remember I know why this happened. Mm-hmm. I know all, I know me and you feel good, but then you go, then you go, how am I ever going to reacclimate and not drink alcohol? Right. It's when it's, it's all you it's, do. It's an right. impossibility. Right. I'm not going to be able to be my Chris Farley self. I'm not going to be able to be in the mix. I'm not going to be able to control all these situations and make sure, because I want people to have as much fun as me every time we go out and I want to see the world. That's right. Tonight. Mm-hmm. So it it was it was it's yeah. difficult for everybody, but you get through it. And my therapist said once, because I remember driving home from my first therapy session after I got a rehab, because it's a thirty minute drive. I got some time to think, and it was one of the first days of spring. And I'm looking at these patios, and people are boozing, and I'm just these <sighs> moments of just complete resentment and anger. And I talked to talked to him about that, and he said. They won't, they'll come, they won't last as long, and they won't be as often. Right. And I really stuck to that thinking, okay, let's see if that's the truth. And, and it, it was, and right? It is yep. the, and it is the truth. It's waves, you know, and then you got to grind through those waves. You've done right. so much work. You can't just, we could all just give in and have that day where, screw it, man. <laughs> screw all this because everything's against me and we get our little woe is me pity parties going on. But That's right. What do we call that? A short-term solution or a long-term solution to a short-term problem, right? And, and um, you know, I think that we live in pretty cool times now because I think that there's not so much of a stigma around recovery is that a lot of people get it now more than they used to. Some Most of the time, if I, if I, you know, somebody offers me a drink and I'm, I, that's not an uncomfortable situation for me anymore. I know how to handle that. But if they want to push that, I'm able to say, I don't drink. And very rarely do I have to say, Hey man, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Stop 
offering me a drink, you know, get the point, you know, most people get it like nowadays. I think there's the recovery community is big enough now that most people, not all people, but a lot of people, they'll receive you not like I can go out as a musician and I'm not the only musician in that bar not drinking anymore, you know, and that, I think that's really neat. It's not like the thirties where you did not want anyone to know that you were in recovery because then you had to admit that you were an alcoholic and that was a big problem back then. You know, I, I think we live in times where it's a lot more acceptable, you know, to understand that people are sick and, and there's a stigma with it that goes with it. But I think that it's, we're, we've made a lot of headway in that area. We're chipping away, but there's still a mountain to climb. Long way to go. Yeah. What would you say to the mother, the father, the person that's still struggling that's stuck in that stigma thinking, I know I have a problem, but I can't disclose this. Right. I'm going to be the scarlet letter and I I don't, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. What do you say to those people? Isn't that really, I think you and I have both been through that, that place where we come from families in Northern Kentucky, where I don't want to embarrass my family. I don't want to embarrass the people around. I don't want to speak for you, but that's how I was. I was was like, man, you know, like this is, this is on me. You know, I'm not, I don't come from a long line of people that this is expected of. Like I'm a standout. This is not, not in a positive way in my head at the time. And I think you ask a really good question because I think that folks that are having a look at it and they're scared that it's going to somehow harm them or they're embarrassed or, you know, they're just stuck in the cycle and they don't want to, they don't want anyone to know that there's a lot of anonymous help out there. And and I believe strongly in that. I belong believe strongly in anonymity. And I'm talking about in therapy, with counseling, in groups. I'm not just talking about a program. And I think that usually if you can just talk to somebody that you trust, and most people have someone that they can trust um, about what's going on, the relief that happens the moment you say it, I think starts a chain of events that's life-changing forever. Even if you're just saying it and you don't get help for another 20 years. I think that the folks that are strong are the ones that realize I'm stuck in a cycle here and I should talk about it. So my, my suggestion, I guess, or my hope for those people is that they're able to at least find one person to tell and, and understand that there's communities of people out there. There's mil- literally millions of people in the world now who live anonymously <laughs> outside of their uh, lives in their in their addiction recovery because they can talk about things anonymously that wouldn't be acceptable in, in normal life. You know, uh, they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be acceptable for me to, sit and tell some of these stories of my life at a, at the dinner table. But you can say that uh, in an anonymous situation with somebody who has a shared experience and typically they'll giggle because they've had a very similar experience. And I think that, I think it goes to, you're talking about the mother or the father that are experiencing that cycle. And that's the idea is they're separated and they, you know, I think the help comes from plugging back in to some folks that know exactly what you're feeling. Cause that's the loneliness you and I were talking about. And that feeling what I was talking about when that first day of rehab, they feel like they're the only person in the world to ever go through what they're going through. And that's a, that's a power. It's a very powerful feeling. And if you can just, somehow verbalize it to someone else, it starts to lose its power. As we wrap up, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for everything you do. You're 
I'm three and a half years in. I mean, just very inspirational. Uh, you have helped hundreds of people, and you've done so much for this community. And I just want to—I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being here, and uh, keep kicking ass. Thank you. Thanks for everything you do. This is great, wonderful. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.